we always say, okay, here's our advice, but remember, you don't have to listen to us. I don't want you to just do whatever we told you to do just because we're your investors. I'm Scott McGrew. Welcome to Sand Hill Road. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Jonathan Abrams is a longtime Silicon Valley entrepreneur turned relatively new venture capitalist as co-founder and general partner at 8-Bit Ventures. I've known Jonathan a very long time. The good thing about, I guess, being on your podcast is you can't show one of those videos of me looking 20 years younger and embarrass me anymore. <laughs> I did do that on television, didn't I? The reason I had video of Jonathan from 20 years ago is I interviewed Jonathan 20 years ago. He had just started something he had called Friendster. It was a website where you posted a personal page that had links to your friends' personal pages, which had links to their friends' personal pages. He called it social networking. You roll that clip of me looking like so much younger. I'm just like, oh my God, who is that guy? And I had more hair. I looked a lot different. <laughs> I still have hair, but it's, it's so gray. How long ago was Friendster? I mean, you know, you did a, a segment on Friendster where you came in. So when, when, I, when Kent and I started working together on Friendster, we didn't even have an office. But uh, when, when your segment, uh, the clip you showed was from a very first office. So yes. it's still pretty early. So early, in fact, it was before MySpace and way before Facebook. Personal side story, I was so amazed by the idea of a social network, I tore back to the office to explain it to my colleague, Scott Budman, and said, this is amazing, we gotta take action on this. I'll tell that story a little later in the podcast. Back to Jonathan. And we had sort of started this industry. People, people just forget how, you know, how when, when we were working on it, like we didn't know, well, did anybody ever do this? And people right. were like, what is this? It, it's, <laughs> it's very it, different. It, a little like, uh, you know, maybe maybe this is a bit grandiose, but, you know, Orville and Wilbur Wright, and you know, we've invented this thing. Do you think there's anything we can do with this airplane thing? I don't know. We've never yeah. seen such a thing. Maybe maybe something's useful for something. Yeah. It was, yeah, it was a long time ago. <laughs> long time ago. Is there something that you would tell younger entrepreneurs now that you're an, if I can say it, an older entrepreneur? Well, there's a lot I would I would say, but I think there's so much more information now. I mean, when I started off as a 20-something entrepreneur, there was no podcast, there was no blogs, there was no Y Combinator, there was no AngelList. So it was a completely different era in terms of the information available. So, you know, today somebody, if they really want to, they can go and do their homework and they can listen to me on podcasts like yours and they can read blogs and posts from Paul Graham and Mark Andreessen. I mean, there's so much information available. Um, you know, I think the biggest lesson for me as an entrepreneur was 
probably what uh, Naval Ravikant was famous for saying, which was that valuation is temporary, but control is forever. And I, I think that was a, a big lesson we learned at Friendster. But the funny thing is right now is that, you know, Kent and I are technically venture capitalists now. So when, right. we're, giving, uh, when we're giving advice to entrepreneurs, we, we actually now have to be very cognizant of that. And we actually, we're, we, we always say, okay, here's our advice, but remember, you don't have to listen to us. I don't well, want you to just do whatever we told you to do just because we're your investors. Which is absolutely as it should be. But it's interesting that you are, we, you know, I'm speaking of you as an experienced entrepreneur, but you're kind of an inexperienced venture capitalist. Uh, you, you've been an angel investor for quite some time, and I'll get to that in a minute. But what you're doing is, is new to you. That's true. So Kent and I doing 8-Bit Capital, on one hand, it's new, on one hand, it's not. So to some extent, it's a bit, you know, this is the first time we've been full-time investors. And I think we have some beginner's mind, to quote a Buddhist term, and I think that's good. On the other hand, in addition to being operators, CEOs, founders, advisors, mentors, LPs and funds, advisors to funds, angel investors, you know, we have so much experience that we've seen all sides of the venture and founder ecosystem from so many perspectives, pretty much every perspective Mm -hmm. other than just being the fund manager ourselves. And, you know, Ken's been interviewing VCs on his podcast. And at Founders Den, I was essentially the landlord for a bunch of VC firms. But technically, technically, this is the first time we've been full-time investors, even though I think, you know, we've bring so much experience, including LPs and funds to this, that we've been preparing for this for years. When you were an angel investor, uh, you know, long list, angel list, clear tax, clubhouse, that's been in the news lately, Docker, not the pants, uh, hello sign, Instacart, etc. What is the difference for you personally between angel investing and running an early stage investment firm? I, early stage and angel sounds a bit tomato, tomato to me. Well, there's there's similarities and there are differences. So we're still investing at very early stages. And what we call a $10 million Series A today used to be called the Series B. And what we call the seed is, you know, 10, mm-hmm. 15 years ago might have been called the Series A. So a lot of these venture capital firms that are now managing billions of dollars are really, they're kind of not really doing the early stage venture. And firms like Apa Capital are really more doing the classic early stage venture work. So there's a lot similar to angel investing and what we're doing now since we're still investing very, very early. But we are writing bigger checks than I did as an angel investor, and we now have to think about it. We're managing uh, other people's money. So if it's just a friend who I like and I think their idea is cool, but I don't think it's going to be a multi-billion dollar company, maybe I would have considered an angel investment. But for APA Capital, I have to think, look, I have, a, I have a fiduciary responsibility to my investors. It's not just an emotional thing. It's not just supporting your friends. It's also making sure that we're trying to invest in companies that are going to make a lot of money. And then the other thing is that uh, at, a, at a firm uh, that's that's a venture capital firm, you're, you're also going to do uh, further decisions. You're going to have follow-on decisions. You're going to have to decide, not just after that first angel investment, you have to decide if you're going to invest again in the next round. If the company is struggling, do you put more money in it? Do you try to put more money in the Series A or Series B? And that's a big difference than, than what an angel investor would typically do. You mentioned Founders Den. Uh, Founders Den bills itself as, and I'm going to read here, San Francisco's most exclusive workspace and community for startups and investors. Now, exclusive and exclusion are from the same root. Obviously, inclusion is where you want to be these days. And I am not in any way accusing you of being excluding people. I will point out you are on the board of Girls in Tech. But help me understand how you balance at Founders Den to be exclusive without being exclusionary. 
Yeah, it's a good question because I think that term probably should be changed today since it probably maybe it is it is dated, isn't it? Yeah, I think it probably is. And we you know, that's a term we wrote, I think, 10 years ago. So at Founders Den, we've actually had entrepreneurs from all of the world and we've had entrepreneurs of of every kind. And I think if you look at the diversity of entrepreneurs that we've had at Founders Den, it's something that's been very successful and something I think that we worked hard at. I'll jump in and say Jonathan changed the language on the website later in the afternoon after our interview. One of the benefits of places like Founders Den is this just the serendipity of, of, you know, I'm working on a project that is very similar to yours and I've already solved a problem that you are having. Um, the, the San Francisco Silicon Valley ecosystem for that is, is just tremendous. For somebody who doesn't live in the Bay Area. Explain explain how important that is. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think that Founders Den is right in the Soma, right near the ballpark in South Park. And you can walk outside of Founders Den under normal circumstances before COVID and just bump in serendipitously to other entrepreneurs and investors. And there's something very magical and and unique about that. And that's why I moved here from Canada. Um, And I think there are some people who think post-COVID, everybody's just going to be doing everything over Zoom. And there's obviously, there's been a lot of stuff on Twitter about VCs who've left San Francisco and moved to Miami or other places. Um, Kent and I actually suspect that that uh, we're going to have a, a period soon after everybody's vaccinated where there's going to be a lot of young entrepreneurs who are uh, wanting to start their careers who are going to actually move to San Francisco. And there might be people who maybe have already built their network who go elsewhere, but there will still be an influx of new people who want to come and, and experience that serendipity. We may see, in fact, another boom in the sense that uh, San Francisco rent had gotten completely out of hand and maybe that people who wouldn't have thought to move here now possibly can. Yeah, I absolutely think that will happen. And it's interesting for us because, you know, APA Capital, we invest in startups that connect people and businesses in new ways. And one of the examples of that is business communication tools and distributed work tools and things that really lend itself to uh, people transcending geographical boundaries and and working uh, maybe not in the same city, not in an office. So some of the companies that we've invested in uh, probably benefit from that and, and also help with that. At the same time, we live in San Francisco, which is this unique, you know, center of the ecosystem where we have that serendipitous ability normally to bump into other investors and to meet founders in person. And we still think that there's something special about that that's just not quite the same on Zoom. I think it's one of the things that, you know, I everyone's talking about work from home. And if I were offered to work from home, I would think of the upsides of it. You know, no, no commute. Uh, I can, you know, run the dishwasher in the middle of my workday, that kind of stuff. On the other hand, I think there's an advantage to being in the office and running into the boss in the hallway and, and sharing a funny joke or something like that. Uh, we don't really have promotions in the news business, but you know the the person who is out distant uh, can can be forgotten. And I think I think there is you know going to be an advantage to coming back into the office for a lot of people. I think you're right, and I think that there's some people who think that the ideal mode is a hybrid mode where they come into the office maybe three days a week and two days they don't have to sure. bother commuting, and maybe they can just stay at home in their sweatpants. And that sounds ideal, but I actually think it's it's not. In some ways, it's the worst of both worlds. My partner, Kent, says it's uh, like splitting the baby. Um, I think that if you have an office and you've spent all the money to have the office and the broadband and the chairs and all that stuff you need, uh, having your people not use it some of the time is not necessarily that beneficial. 
And if you are only coming in some of the time, but you're not fully remote, you, you can't just live anywhere. You still have to live commuting distance you know, from there. So I think the idea that somehow the, the hybrid model is the best model, I, I'm not sure that's really true. And I think that you're right, that, that some people, maybe it's younger people trying to, to build their network or prove themselves to their boss, who come into the office and have that FaceTime, the FaceTime with their boss or the, the FaceTime with their colleagues and the, the ability to collaborate more, they may have an advantage if you have a, a environment where some people are remote and some people are not. So I think if you're really going to be remote, everybody has to be remote. And there are companies like Zapier and Automatic that have that, even before COVID, that fully remote distributed uh, 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 system. And I think you either have to do that fully or not at all. And I think companies who do it have to really know what they're doing. They have to have the processes and the culture to do it successfully. And I don't think every company is going to pull that off. There's a sort of a funny little conflict there that that 8-Bit is going to invest in things that make it easier for people to, to work separately. But you probably feel it'd be better to work together. I think that there are a lot of conflicts like that. And, you know, there are people who think, oh, well, entrepreneurship and innovation now can happen everywhere. It doesn't need to be in San Francisco. And we've already invested in companies out of outside of San Francisco at Big Capital, and we'll continue to do so. Um, but the funny thing is, if you think you can invest anywhere, then you don't really need, you know, somebody who says, okay, well, we're going to, we're going to be the, uh, the venture capital firm that's in the, in the Midwest or, or mm-hmm. the East coast or somewhere else. If you really think that everything can be done remotely, then an entrepreneur or, I mean, a venture capital firm can San, from San Francisco can invest in all those places as well. So, you know, I think some of these things don't really make sense, but I definitely think there are contradictions. I mean, we are definitely recognizing that we invest in digital tools that sort of transcend these barriers. And yet we were also physically in San Francisco and, you know, at this at this unique, you know, geography that is the center of the innovation economy. Uh, but we also want to invest in, you know, places like my hometown of Toronto or or in the Nordics or in Asia, too. So there is a contradiction there. There, there, there absolutely is, and we're conscious of it. And But there's there's so many contradictions about us doing APA Capital uh, to begin with, because in some ways we've prepared for this for so many years, and in some ways we still kind of think it's kind of funny to think of ourselves as VCs. We, some, you know, we, sort, of, we sort of really still don't, even though we are. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Uh, so tell me why 8-bit. I, you know, it's a, a reference to, you know, uh, uh, old, old style Nintendo, I'm guessing. So the name 8-Bit Capital is definitely a, a nerdy and nostalgic retro reference. And it's a, it's a reference to the first generation of home computers. So when I was a kid, I had a Commodore 64, and that's how I learned to code. And some people had an Apple II or an Atari. 
Um, so it also, of course, video games, the early video games were also 8-bit computers. So that's what it's a reference to. You know, there, there are a lot of, uh, venture capital firms in Silicon Valley, and it seems like new ones are starting every day. And many of them have really boring names. And, you know, one of the, the unique things about Kent and I versus so many other folks is that we have built, uh, companies and brands before from scratch, like, uh, the startups we've built, like Friendster or things like Founders Den. And we wanted a name that was a little bit more fun, a little bit more memorable and would actually stand out. And hopefully people would, you know, be able to remember Ape Capital. So, uh, you know, and, and we are nerdy, uh, old school guys. So, you know, it's authentic. <laughs> Tell me about your Commodore. When did you get it? How old were you? I got my Commodore 64. Uh, it was, I think, 82. And I think I was 12, almost 13. Uh, it was a great computer. I mean, it's amazing that Commodore 64 is still incredibly popular today. There are still people who have like Commodore 64 clubs and, and, and still create new games for the Commodore 64, which is going, that's probably going a little bit farther than I do in my uh, nostalgia for it. Now, that was the one with the color screen, right? It, yeah, it had color, which, uh, and you initially, most people just connected it through to their TV yes. because you didn't yes. probably have a monitor right away. And then, of course, the TV was pretty fuzzy because you had to connect it with like a really janky adapter. Yes, I had an Apple II, uh, and then it had just a single disk drive, and of course we would make copies of all those games on floppy disk, not, you know, maybe ignoring the, the piracy aspect of it, and of course we couldn't afford games anyway, but... Well, uh, I, I hope the statute of limitations yeah, let's, let's on your, has, you, since you, know, you just as, admitted as an, to be a, an Apple II software pirate. <laughs> as an adult, I feel bad about it. But as a kid, you're just like, oh, that's how you get games, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you'd, you'd, uh, you'd put in, you know, the, the, disc, uh, the disc that had the game on it. Uh, the disc drive would whir for a minute and there'd be a prompt, you know, for you to take that disc out and put the new disc in, the one you're going to make the copy on. Uh, and this would take a good part of the day. It was a different era, and and you know, and, and I think kids today would would find it hard to believe all the stuff we're talking about. But there are people older than us who would be like, "In my day, I right. had, you know, <laughs> punch punch tapes on the mainframe, and it was in another floor." <laughs> I do love everything that I do. I love my job. I love my career. But there are two inflection points uh, in which I look back and I think, huh. One is, you know, my parents buying me an Apple II, and I think we're almost exactly the same age, so about 12 or 13, you know, and I'm coding in basic, et cetera, and thinking, you know, if I'd stuck with coding, I, I probably would have had an entirely different career path. Uh, and the other is you and I meeting, and you and you you referenced this at the beginning, is I remember seeing a social network for the very first time in my life. And I ran back to the newsroom to tell a fellow reporter about it that, hey, I think this social network thing is going to be a big deal. Uh, and we, the two of us decided, well, perhaps we'd write a book about it. Uh, and so we sort of, you know, got an agent and we started working on this idea of writing a book about the future of social networking. And the New York uh, publishing industry said, forget it, because it was kind of in the middle of the dot-com bust. And, you know, Silicon Valley is over, uh, they said. And, and in retrospect, I, I say to myself, you know, the next time I, I see a really great idea, I'm not going to write a book about it. I'm going to start a competing company. Yeah. Well, I think you're right that that uh, Friendster was sort of an inflection point, and it really inspired a whole industry, uh, not just the copycats, the other social networking copycats, but the whole industry of new social media companies. And for me, that moment, I think, was downloading Mosaic, downloading yes. the Mosaic browser, and experiencing the, the early, early, early days of the World Wide Web 
in a graphical format, that for me was was that sort of moment. I mean, obviously, getting my Commodore sixty four was an earlier moment like that. Um, but Mosaic was one of those was sort of turning points for me, and I think Friendster was uh, was that for some other entrepreneurs. That idea of I had a, a home page back in the day, and and that that idea that you could create something on a computer that anyone in the world could access. Uh, a website uh, that other people could come and visit and read. And then, of course, you put a little counter down at the bottom, right? So you can keep track of how many people did. Um, it was empowering. Yeah. And I, that's what APIC Capital is really all about. So when I, the, the probably the really cool thing after I got my Commodore 64 was when I got a 300 baud modem <laughs> and I could actually dial up a BBS in Toronto and talk to another computer and you could talk to somebody. And eventually with the internet, you know, even before the web, uh, you could, you know, use Telnet or Gopher and you could be in Toronto and communicating with the computer in Los Angeles or Minnesota or something like that. And Kent and I both remember just feeling so amazed that we could be connecting uh, to some computer far away in another city or country. And when I started my career, I started my career doing telecommunication software and then moved to Silicon Valley to work at Netscape and then, of course, started Friendster. And that's what APIC Capital is really all about. It's, it's about using technology, using software networks to connect people in new ways. And that, that's just what we think is the most meaningful and powerful uh, way that you can apply technology. I'm trying to think of, you know, I think it was probably iPhone uh, was the the most recent thing where I thought to myself, oh, this is, because uh, remember, uh, Steve Jobs was not going to allow apps. It was all going to be, no, you know, it was all going to be uh, web-based and then they allowed apps, which is hard to imagine that wasn't going to be the case. Um, but that's probably the most recent sort of experience I've had where I've looked at something and said, oh, wow, okay, that's, that's going to change a lot. Um, do you think you'll recognize the next one? That's a good question. I mean, I think there's some people who think that, uh, that it's the voice chat apps that are, that are like that. But I think people sometimes just want to, to wish it into existence. They want to think that blockchain or virtual reality or something is the next big thing. And a lot of times I don't actually think people recognize it when they see it. So you were talking about how when you saw Friendster super early on and wanted to write a book about social networking, the people you worked with actually said, no, that's, that's not a good idea. And, you know, when somebody, you know, when I saw Mosaic and, you know, I wrote my first HTML page, I thought this is going to change everything. But it was years before regular people yes. were using the web. So I think sometimes, you know, I think Chris Dixon at Andreessen Horowitz, I think it's him who said that a lot of times these things get, st when they start, people think it's a toy. And then it ends up, you know, actually being something that revolutionizes, you know, revolutionizes the whole industry. So I think it's hard to know. Um, I think a lot of the things that we're doing right now, um, relate to the digitization of business and the move to the cloud. And those things are not new at all. And, you know, if you think back when Netscape and Oracle and some of those companies wanted to have the network computer, or when there was a buzzword called uh, ASP, it was like application service provider, which was basically just SaaS, you know, or, or cloud, um, you know, way too early. So some of these things that we're very excited investing in right now um, that are doing really great are things that have, have people have been talking about for 10 years or more. And, and, and as an investor, I'm conscious of the fact that a lot of times if you invest in the first search engine or if you invest in this first social network, a lot of times that's not the one that's going to be successful. So as, as investors, we have to recognize that you know our job is to make money. It's, it's not to be necessarily innovative like when we were entrepreneurs. And a lot of times being too early is actually not the best for the investment. Jonathan Abrams, co-founder and general partner 
at 8-Bit Capital. Sand Hill Road is produced by Sean Myers under the leadership of Sarah Bueno and Stephanie Adruni. For more interviews with Silicon Valley's most influential entrepreneurs, check me out on TV at Press Here. That's Sunday mornings on NBC Bay Area and everywhere in the world on iTunes and at PressHereTV.com.